Has anyone ever tried a slack line before? Does anyone know what a slack line is? Kind of stretch it between two trees. There's a ratchet strap. Okay, I am terrible at slack lining. Please never ask me to do it if you're trying to impress someone. I will not. However, my wife, Emma, is amazing at slack line. She can like sit down and stand up and like, you know, do all this sort of fancy business. It always impresses me. And on June 30th, 1859, a man named Charles Blandon performed an incredible feat. And it didn't have to do with a slack line, but with a tightrope. Very similar. He set up the tightrope that he would walk across, something that he'd done many times, something that many of you in this room could do if you tried. Except this time, the tightrope was four football fields long and suspended 160 feet, 16 stories over the Niagara Falls. Incredible. And not only did Mr. Blandin walk once across the tightrope, but he walked there and he walked back and he started doing tricks because it was too easy for him. He did it blindfolded. He did it backwards. He did it on stilts walking across this tightrope. He even did it pushing a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. Simeon knows what that's like. So do I. Here's a question for you. When he got back, he comes back to the crowd and he says, does anyone believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across? Everyone said, yeah, we've seen you do it. Of course you can. Then he asks the question more specifically. Would anyone, would he be able to push someone in the wheelbarrow across the tightrope? A lot of people say, yeah, probably. Then he asks a very penetrating question. Who's willing to get into the wheelbarrow? No one raised a hand. If your life was on the line, you would not raise your hand. And there is a difference between believing that something is possible and being willing to put your full trust in it. When it comes to salvation, believing that God exists, that he is a person out there, is not enough to save you. James chapter 2 even says that the demons have knowledge of who God is, and yet they're in hell. They are living under his judgment. The demons would say that Jesus could push the wheelbarrow across, as would some of you. But unless you genuinely are willing to place yourself in the wheelbarrow, to trust in Jesus Christ alone, to demonstrate faith in God, you will not be saved. Tonight we're going to continue studying the book of Mark. You can turn there with me in your Bibles. We're going to look at Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to read about two people that are very different in a lot of ways. But they both express genuine faith in God. If you happen to be taking notes, you can write down the title, Desperate Faith. Desperate Faith. Let's pray before we dive in. Lord, would you be with us in this time studying your word? Would you open our hearts to hear it? Would you quiet our brains to listen? God, would you give us great joy in the preaching and the hearing of your word? Make our hearts soft and ready to receive them and work with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Last week, Scott Coltrano preached the end of Mark 4. What story did Mr. Scott talk about? 
Anyone? Anyone? Um, like the storm. The storm? That's right. The storm. So Jesus is on a boat with the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. And this massive storm arises. And Jesus, just with his words, calms the storm miraculously. What is not revealed in that passage is why they were even crossing the lake in the first place. And chapter 5 reveals that. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat after reaching the other side, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. You're listening. That's good. (laughs) And what happens in the following verses is that Jesus casts out this demon in this man with an unclean spirit. He demonstrates complete power over the demons. He heals this man, and then he just gets in the boat and leaves. <laughs> Jesus crosses the sea to accomplish this one significant miracle, and then he comes back. And that's where we pick up in verse 21. This passage makes use of something that Mark does multiple times in writing his gospel, and I think Daniel has already talked about this. He starts one story, he interjects another story, and then he finishes the bottom, finishes the first one. Some people call it a Mark and sandwich. I have a sweet tooth, so I like to call it a Mark and Oreo. So we're going to study a Mark and Oreo tonight. There's cookie on the top, there's cream in the middle, which double stuff, way to go, for sure. Cookie on the bottom, okay? We're looking at a Mark and Oreo. Let's read from verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, which is a church leader. And seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Jesus, just returning from healing this demon-possessed man, arrives to this massive crowd of people that have heard who he is and what he can do. And here he's met with our first figure named Jairus. But just when Jesus is leaving to go help Jairus, to help his daughter, all of a sudden he's interrupted by someone else. What does this interruption look like? Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports of Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately when she did this, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. Come on. You guys were on it. Immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So imagine this story. There's thousands of people swarming around Jesus. All these people bustling into each other. And someone touches Jesus and goes, who touched me? Like, what kind of ridiculous question is that, Jesus? And his disciples kind of call him out. They're like, you see the crowd is pressing around you. Look at verse 31. And yet you say, who touched me? The disciples can't understand what is happening here. Jesus looked around, though, to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. 
And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So now we've met the second figure. Looked at the the top cookie, cream filling, back to the bottom cookie, okay? And it seems Jesus had been sidetracked from his mission to heal Jairus' daughter. So let's hear how he heals Jairus' daughter. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house, from Jairus' house, someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, Do not fear, only believe. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And the crowd laughed at Jesus. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, good job. The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word, and it is a gift to us. And all of God's word is profitable for teaching, for training us. And there's a lot of things that we can even learn from this section of 20 verses out of thousands and thousands in the Bible. But what we're going to focus tonight on is desperate faith. What is desperate faith? And what, how do we see it here? We're going to look at how both Jairus and the other figure, the woman, the unnamed woman, demonstrate desperate faith in three different ways. Number one, searches for Jesus. Desperate faith searches for Jesus. Has anyone ever gotten lost in a store or crowd when you were like a little kid? I have, like five or six years old. You're walking with mom and dad. And all of a sudden you turn around and they're gone and you are panicking. You're like, where are you, mom? Where are you, dad? I need you. There's all these strangers around me. I don't know them. I'm looking for this one person. There's this desperation because there's only one person who can help you. There's only one person that you need. And Jairus is an educated man. He was well-liked. He was well-respected. He had deep pockets. That means he was wealthy. He had influence. He is on the high end of the social totem pole. He worked hard at his job while also serving as a ruler of the synagogue. He was a great churchman. He would organize Sunday meetings. He would teach the law to the people. And he protected the scriptures. He was like the perfect churchman. You wanted this guy to be at your church. If you were walking to church on Sunday morning, like... Who's the model citizen? It's Jairus. He's the guy. He's doing the right things. He's an upstanding man. He had things going for him. And he had a level of influence that most people didn't. And yet, when his daughter is sick, where does he go? He searches for Jesus. And he doesn't just want to see Jesus in order to admire him. He doesn't just recognize that Jesus is able to do some pretty crazy things. No, Jairus understands that he needs a miracle. 
And he recognizes that he cannot perform it himself. There's no way that he can do this. His knowledge of religion is not enough to save his daughter. He has come to the end of himself and he recognizes that he needs Jesus. Our other character came from a very different position. She isn't even named in this account. And though in some ways she's very, the very opposite of Jairus, she also searches for Jesus. Where do we see that? Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. This woman had heard that there was some man who could heal things that were impossibly sick. He could perform miraculous healings. And rumors had been spreading about this Jesus fellow and that if there was any way that these claims were true, she was going because she was desperately sick. What we gather from verse 25 and 26 is that this woman was not only just sick, but now she was very poor because she had spent all that she had on treatment. She'd spent the last 12 years of her life pursuing doctors, attempting treatments, but all of them had failed. Verse 26 concludes with something sad. She spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. This woman has no hope in doctors. Their solutions had only provided more problems. Time and time again, she's invested money and effort into a treatment that has failed. She has been weak and needy for 12 straight years. 12 years. How many of you in this room are 12 years old? She has been sick as long as you have been alive. (laughs) Can you imagine an entire life with a serious physical issue that's painful, that's humiliating, and it even separates you from all of your friends? Imagine making it 12 years in life without a single friend. Not one. Both of these individuals express desperate faith. They have come to the end of themselves. They know they can't do it on their own. And so what do they do? They search for Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, that's where I'm going. And when they find him, how do they come to him? One way to describe it is that they, number two, ignore the rules. They ignore the rules. Let's go back to when Jairus arrives to where Jesus is. Does he come with arms crossed? standing at Jesus, expecting for Jesus to serve him. After all, this is a man of status and wealth. He's popular. He's influential. When people think of serving God, they look at him and they say, well, however he does it, that's how I'm going to serve God. Would a man like Jairus be willing to look like a fool when he comes to Jesus? Well, how does he come? Look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, the leading churchman, Jairus. And seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. That means he begged. He came to Jesus, falls on his knees, and begs Jesus. Jairus does not care what people think of him. This is a highly respected official with lots of influence who does not care what he looks like to the people around him. He's ignoring the rules of traditional behavior. He's forgotten what religious decency is supposed to look like. 
It seems he's forgotten the way that normal people worship. He just throws himself down at the feet of Jesus. Many of you in this room have been raised in a Christian home. I'm very thankful for that. Praise the Lord that he has done that. But sometimes what being around that culture constantly creates in us is a sense of all of these things that we feel like we should be doing, even though we don't know why we do them. Here's an example. Do you end every prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen? (laughs) We tend to do that. Some of us, we start every prayer with, dear God, thank you for this day. Some of us, um, maybe we only ever pray when we sit down in a meal and we say grace over the meal. Maybe some of us have this routine of when we come worship in song, we only raise one hand and it has to be at the right point in the chorus of the third song. (laughs) Right? Sometimes we act that way. And I don't want you to hear me and say that these things are bad, but really you should ask yourself a question. Even right in this moment, am I willing to ignore the rules if that's what worshiping Jesus looks like? Am I willing to do that? Would prayer be prayer to me if I don't begin with, dear God, thank you for this day, and end with, in Jesus' name, amen? Would it still be prayer? Would it still be honorable to God? Would you be willing to look foolish or silly or immature in public if it meant that was worshiping Jesus? Are you willing to put away your pride to stop caring about what people think about you or even say about you if that's what following Jesus means? I know many of you have a background similar to Jairus. And we see in him an incredible all-out example of full-on worship to King Jesus, who is worthy of it. But there are others in this room who actually identify more with the unnamed woman. Let me explain. In the book of Leviticus, the law makes it very clear that a woman with a condition like hers was considered unclean. And not unclean like Some of you boys who haven't washed your hands or taken a shower in 48 hours. But ceremonially unclean, which is a much bigger deal. Did anyone ever read the book, Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Anyone? That's like, that's probably a few years before you. Diary of a Wimpy Kid. In the Diary of a Wimpy Kid, hey, listen up, guys. There's this one character who touches this gross piece of cheese that was left on the playground. And then he, be, he gets this terrible reputation. He has the cheese touch. It's terrible. And what happens when you have the cheese touch is no one wants to be near you. Because as soon as you're touched, you get the cheese touch. Terrible. Terrible. It's funny, but this actually paints a pretty good picture of what it means to be ceremonially unclean. It's not just about being dirty. But this woman actually would have lived her life being barred from the synagogue, from basically coming to church. She would have been barred from her own friends and family. Her condition meant that she was not able to have any physical contact with someone or else she would give the uncleanliness to them. She was a social outcast. She was the bottom of the totem pole. And some of you in this room feel like a failure to God. And because you feel like you have failed so much, you feel like God does not have the time 
of day to spend with you. That God would never accept you. But I want you to see what this woman does here. This woman ignores the rules by seeking Jesus anyway. Look at verse 27 again. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She knows that her actions may cost her dearly. She may be rebuked. She may be shunned, exiled. She might even be killed for doing this. We know that because in verse 33, it says that she comes to Jesus in fear and trembling, in awe of the power of this man. She no doubt has fear and anxiety of what could happen. She knows that she is currently living separated from God. She can't come to the synagogue, to the place of worship. She is in exile of God. She knows that she is not worthy to even approach him. But her desperate faith drives her to do something beyond that. She searches for Jesus. She ignores the rules. And finally, we see the result, the effect of what this leads to. Number three, it leads to life. What does desperate faith do? It leads to life. Now we get to see an incredible story, an incredible display of the power of the Son of God. Instead of the woman's touch, her cheese touch, polluting Jesus, contaminating Jesus, making Jesus unclean, rather, Jesus' touch cleans her. It cleanses her. Jesus, in his power, flips this curse on its head, just like he would later do in dying for us on the cross. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He exchanged himself for us. In this act, the woman has expressed that her faith is desperate. She puts her whole trust in Jesus. She gets in the wheelbarrow. And instantly, miraculously, God heals her body. And he gives her life. And the sickness being gone means she doesn't have to spend all of her money on doctors and her time on treatments and cures that do not work. But now she can share in community again. She can worship God in, her, in the temple. She can have friends in normal relationships with people. This is life-giving. But what's even more incredible is that God doesn't just heal her body. He tells her to go in peace meaning to go in God's peace. Jesus is revealing that the faith that this woman has has saved her. She is spiritually healed as well. She has trusted in Jesus and has forsaken everything else. She has received him as Lord, and now she gets him as Savior. She submits to him and now receives him as Savior To all who may have this thought in their mind that God is harsh or strict. I want you to look at how Jesus responds to her touch. Look at verse 34. See this. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, your faith has made you well. See the tender kindness of God. The mercy of Jesus, and not just forgiving a sinner, which is unfathomable, 
but now welcoming her home with loving affection. Not just a servant or a slave, but as a son or a daughter. To the one with no family, with no friends, with no hope, Jesus calls daughter. He says, you are mine. I know you. I love you. You are mine. Did you know that in all of Scripture, this is the only time Jesus calls someone daughter? (laughs) Why do you think he did that? Well, perhaps it was for the man listening and watching this whole exchange take place. His name is Jairus. We've forgotten about him, but remember that all of this interaction with the woman is taking place on the road to go heal Jairus' daughter. Can you imagine being this father whose daughter is deathly ill and needs Jesus, needs a miracle, and all of a sudden Jesus gets sidetracked by this woman who's sick, but not like she's going to die. She's been having this for 12 years. Certainly she can wait a little bit longer. How quickly would Jairus be prone to impatience? Come on, Jesus. Let's go, Jesus. We're running out of time, Jesus. This is a matter of life and death. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still sending the healed woman off, a servant from Jairus' house arrives and says, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? What crushing words to hear for a father. Maybe some of you can sympathize with this. Jairus did the right thing. He put his full trust in God. He searched him out. He begged him. He asked that God would be the one to heal. He ignores the rules of decency. And now this? His daughter is dead? This is the payment that he gets? That is not the way it's supposed to go, Jesus. Where are you? Why did you take away my daughter? That's not the plan. Why did you take away my grandpa so early? Why does my friend who loves Jesus have cancer? Why does it seem that when I follow you, Jesus, all of my friends turn against me? If you're in this position tonight, hear these words of Jesus that he says to the man Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. It may seem like death, it may be death, but it will only be that way now. It will not stay that way, only believe. Desperate faith leads to life. When Jesus arrives, he tells the crowd that she's only sleeping. Verse 40 shows their response, and they laughed at him. (laughs) Seemed ridiculous to this crowd. Of course she's dead. We saw her. What What do you mean she's only sleeping? The message of the cross is ridiculous to those who don't believe it. It looks like death. It looks like the Son of God got killed. End of story. Game over. But for those who have desperate faith in Jesus alone, the cross is the way to life. 
It leads to life. Jesus invites those who believe by faith to witness this incredible miracle. In this story, he draws the people who believe in Jesus into the room to see it. He then proceeds to heal this girl, and not just heal her, but to raise her from the dead. He has great care for the daughter of this man, and it's not because he's a good churchgoer. It's not because he's done the right things. It's not because he showed up every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning. It's because he has desperate faith in Jesus. It's because he's willing to put himself in the wheelbarrow. And that is the call for us. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this word. Such an encouraging story of how you save people who are far off. And I pray that these words would penetrate the hearts of these students even tonight as they get to discuss in small group. That you'd be with them. That you would just make them aware and alive to the things of God as revealed in your word. We're grateful for this chance. Bless it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed.